This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Bringing you Dr. History. Good morning. Good morning, Zeb. You know, I'm a little bit, oh, I don't know, I feel slighted. Here you are, a pioneer, a rugged individual, a person that talks about wading through the snow, crossing the desert under absolutely hot temperatures, nothing faces them, and you let a little snowstorm stop you from going 19 miles. Now, Seb, as I recall, you told me you had to use your four-wheeler this morning oh. to go feed your horses. <laughs> I, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I, I think we're both wimps, okay. right? <laughs> What's going on in the world of history this morning? Well, I'm going to do part two of the Pioneer Stage Lines. Okay. Uh, but before I do that, I want to say hi to a couple of people. Uh, Mark and Amy live up in Miles City, Montana, and... Uh, they wanted me to do a show on the horse industry of eastern Montana. You know, they've got so, they've got the best doggone world-famous bucking horse sale in the spring at Miles City. It is second to none. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, so I'm looking about doing something like that. Then I also heard from Scott, who would like me to do a show on beer. On beer or deer? Beer, as in B, B-E-E-R. Oh. Boy, that'll be and, uh, tough for you to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not an expert, but I can research it. I'll see, see what I can come up with. Okay. So. Anyway, so today we're going to kind of go on part two of the Pioneer Stage Lines. And just to kind of keep get everybody up to speed here, uh, two weeks ago I talked about the, uh, uh, the Pioneer Stage Lines, and we had two group two men one a guy named woodson mm-hmm. and he ran the the mail route from independence to salt lake so he had the eastern route and then we had two guys shore penning and woodward and they ran the route from salt lake to sacramento so they had the western route and both of which were difficult tough uh places to go through especially in the winter time but uh Anyway, Woodson, uh, he used pack mules, and he had a contract for about four years. And Shore Penning and Woodward, uh, like I say, they carried the mail west from Salt Lake to Sacramento, uh, and there it was called Woodward and Company. So 
You know, the winter of 1851, uh, I mentioned this, was really, really bad as far as the snow. It was terrible. Uh, I mean, some of them nearly froze to death. Some of the guys trying to carry mail through there. Uh, but uh, one thing that I need to explain is that all the mail companies, uh, they basically just were mail contractors. They didn't really carry passengers very much. So, but, you know, with the increasing quantities of gold dust or bullion and things like that, pretty soon they started carrying more express, more than just the mail. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where we're going to take off right here. Uh, because there was large shipments of gold bars or silver bullion that were being shipped from the mines, and so they would provide a, uh, the term is messenger, an armed messenger, and we always refer to that guy as a shot, shotgun guard, but the real name was a messenger, and he was there to protect the treasure, and the Pioneer Express Company in the West was Adams and Company's California Express, so I'm going to talk about uh, the Adams and Company Express. I got a question before you get started. Okay. And real quick, what about all the addresses to get to the various people, or did they just go to a central location like at a general store? Well, these just went to a general place. They uh, Now, maybe when they got to Sacramento, they may have had delivery people, but we're talking about just the, just, uh, the stage line. I see. You know, just... That we just get a, like from Independence to Salt Lake, and then from Salt Lake to uh, Sacramento. Okay. So they didn't go out and actually deliver. And I think most people back then did just make a trip to the post office, you know, once a week or whatever. So anyway, so during the 1840s, this Alvin Adams began carrying uh, valuables to uh, for pay in the Boston area, uh, property like cash and bank drafts and stocks and bonds and valuables, which during that period were referred to as express, okay, so different than mail. And in short order, his business grew into what became the Adams Express Company of New York. Well, in 1849, he seized on the opportunity afforded by the California Gold Rush. He established Adams and Company's California Express. And there was a guy named Haskell uh, who was in San Francisco, and he was a representative, and another guy named Dinsmore. Uh, who managed the New York office. But anyway, the... Pardon? Did you have a question? No, I'm sitting here absolutely in pensive thought. Okay. And so picture this. During the early years of the California mining uh, excitement, Adams opened offices in nearly every Sierra gold camp. So they didn't go just to California or to Sacramento. They did go out to the gold camps. And within only a few months, he was shipping hundreds of thousands of dollars in gold dust and bullion to New York City. So by 1852, that figure jumped into the millions, and nearly all of that was carried by sailing ship uh, by, uh, through Panama. So they picked it up and put it on ships uh, and uh, uh, shipped it around to New York. Now, contrary to what has sometimes been portrayed uh, or written, Adams and company never engaged in stage coaching. In other words, passengers. Hmm. So at no time did Adams own or operate a staged line in California. What he did is he contracted with established carriers, like there's one called Birch and Stevens, another one called Hall and Grandel lines, to carry his treasure boxes. So he actually just contracted with them to carry these this express. Mm-hmm. So 
So Adams charged each miner a small percentage of the gold dust he guaranteed to deliver and in turn paid the stagecoach operator a percentage of the value they carried, uh, depending upon the hazards involved, whether a route was long or short, safe or infested with bandits. The charge might range from 5 to 10% of the treasure's valley. So it was a very lucrative business. Uh, for both uh, the express company and the stage line owner. But it was profitable only as long as outlaws never stole the gold shipment or uh, uh, the coach drivers weren't killed by Indians. And uh, records suggest that the first Western stagecoach robbery occurred uh, April 1852 when Realfoot Williams <laughs> held up the Nevada City to <laughs> Illinois Town Stage and took 7500 in gold dust from the treasure box. Realfoot Williams blazed a rough trail that countless other bandits uh, would soon follow. And I, Realfoot is, is in quotation marks. I've got to ask you, how in the world would somebody come up with the nickname Realfoot? I mean, it'd be easier to come <laughs> up with Phony Foot, but, I mean, yeah. Realfoot. Is your yeah. foot any more real than mine? Why would it be Tex or... Or Black Bart or something. Yeah. But real foot? Yeah. Okay. This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Whatever. But anyway, by 1852, Adams and Company was by far the leading express carrier in California. Their only real competition being a company called Gregory and Company and a much smaller one called Todd Reynolds and Company. But during the early 1850s, Adams and Company became associated with another company called Page Bacon and Company of St. Louis in San Francisco, uh, a, a banking firm. And in 1852, a financial panic struck San Francisco, and a run was made on the banks, and this Page Bacon and Company couldn't afford to pay off uh, all the miners that wanted their money, demanded their gold, and the bank failed. And so, unfortunately, it took Adams and Company down with it. So for several years more, Adams, uh, they struggled to try to maintain their express business, but they nearly went bankrupt, and they were losing money. Uh, so they lost out to a new company called Wells Fargo and Company. Uh-huh. So the demise of Adams and Company actually came in 1855. The firm closed their doors for the last time. So here comes Wells Fargo and Company, which, of course, everybody knows about them. Mm-hmm. So the failure of, of Adams and Company proved to be this golden opportunity for Wells Fargo. So on July 1st, 1852, Henry Wells and William Fargo, owners of the American Express Company of New York, established an office in San Francisco, which they named Wells Fargo and Company. 
So a Western subsidiary area uh, of their American Express company, uh, with little competition, Wells Fargo lost little time establishing itself at nearly every camp where Adams and Company had once had an office. Huh. So they were going out in all these little places uh, where the miners were uh, to establish an office. So in addition, their early purchase of another company called Gregory and Company also gave them a foothold in places that the Adams and Company hadn't been. So now they were spread out all over uh, in the California area. And within months, Wells Fargo was firmly entrenched all along the Pacific coast. And again, contrary to popular belief or what has often been portrayed in movies and TV, Wells Fargo was not engaged in stage coaching, at least not at that early stage. Really? So initially, yes. So initially, they, you know, you see all these uh, pictures of Wells Fargo stagecoaches, but initially they did not have stagecoaches. Well, that messes up the whole TV series. <laughs> it does. <laughs> but, you know, Wells Fargo was an express company. Uh-huh. And like the Adamson company before them, they contracted with already established transportation firms to carry their treasure boxes. So their charter of incorporation uh, in 1852, leaves no doubt that their business was express and not stage coaching. Well, who were Mr. Wells and Mr. Fargo? Well, they were some guys from back east, back in New York. They uh-huh. had the a company called the American Express Company of New York. Oh, don't mention American and, Express on my program. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> That's what it was called, American okay. Express, and became Wells Fargo and Company of you know, the West. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, like I say, they didn't have stagecoaches. Uh, they just uh, used other people's stage lines to carry their treasure boxes. So um, the charter stated that the firm's business was, quote, to undertake the general forwarding and commissioning, commission business, the purchase and sale of gold dust, bullion, and specie, and to deliver packages, parcels, and freight of all descriptions between New York and San Francisco. So that, again, that's kind of a a disillusionment, I guess, if you want to call it that. But uh, anyway, more than a decade later, Wells Fargo did engage in stage coaching. So uh, that kind of restores your faith in them. But even then, only for a short time. Really? And in later years... um, some of the other people uh, started doing stage coaching, but uh, Wells Fargo never at any time operated a stage line anywhere in the entire state of California. But again, that's in early California. You know, so, and I think there's a misconception there. You know, when you watch the movies, like you said, and then also Tales of Wells Fargo with uh, Dale Robertson, the star, and everything, it was always the stagecoach that had the big letters Wells Fargo on it. Right, and then there were a lot of those actually later on, but initially, no, they they weren't. So, uh, you know, there there's a truth to that fact that Wells Fargo stagecoaches ran, uh, and they did, but uh, initially they did not have hmm. any stagecoaches. I'll be darned. So, yeah, but as I mentioned, the firm did engage in staging for a little while uh, uh, after uh, after the California Gold Rush was over. And what we've often read or heard described as a holdup or robbery of a Wells Fargo stage was, in fact, a robbery of some other transportation company's coach, 
with a Wells Fargo treasure box being taken from it. Mm-hmm. So when it says they robbed a, a Wells Fargo stage, what they did is they robbed a Wells Fargo treasure box. I see. What was the so, route, if you don't mind my asking real quick, what was the route from Salt Lake to Sacramento? I mean, it had to be a fairly safe route to pull those stages over, wasn't it? Or right. What was it? Yes. And they followed pretty much the California Trail and the Pony Express trails, and went up over Donner Pass and that direction. I see. And uh, as I recall, I believe they went south of the Great Salt Lake. They initially tried to go uh, over uh, through Raft River in that way, but that didn't that didn't work out so good. Hmm. But during the company's first seven years on the Pacific Slope, in the company's, uh, 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 they had sixty million dollars. And California gold was carried from the diggings in Wells Fargo treasure boxes and transported aboard stage lines uh, in which they'd contracted. So it was inevitable that stagecoaches carrying fortunes in rock gold through such this sparsely settled region would soon attract gold-hungry robbers. Yep. Like, like real foot. Ah. Yeah. So stage robberies were not long in coming, and soon legends uh, would be born, you know, Black Bart and, uh, you know, some of these others. Now, uh, so Woodson, he had the uh, the mail contract on the eastern end from Independence to Salt Lake. Mm-hmm. And that was in 1851 to 1854, and they had the poorest kind of service uh, getting things to Salt Lake City and to the miners. Uh, the California diggings. Uh, complaints were many. Postal inspectors were kept busy trying to investigate what's going on. Uh, sacks of first-class mail were lost or forgotten along the line, or they were actually just buried somewhere in the mountains, never to be seen again. Uh, in August 1854, the editor of the Deseret News of Salt Lake complained that 13 sacks of letters, newspapers, and books had just arrived at the city brought to the valley by ox team rather than by the regular mail service. There appeared to be good cause for complaint, for the sacks had been dispatched from Independence two years before. You know, and that leads me to another question. They must have paid dearly for a letter or a parcel to be sent. Were the people ever notified that their parcel or letter was never sent and they were reimbursed or what? No. No, they just were out of luck. And, and we're talking, uh, there was first-class mail, which w- they did pay a little more attention to try to get it through. But second-class or whatever, yeah, the, it didn't always make it through. And, you know, Woodson made little attempt to deliver, like, say, second-class mail. And a lot of times it just piled up until enough had been accumulated to warrant sending a wagon load west. So they just piled it up in some building, and when it got high enough, they'd, get a wagon, load them up, and try to send it out. Boy, it'd be terrible to send somebody a letter saying, I need your help in the next 30 days, and they don't get it till two years later. Right, yeah, you'd be dead or gone or something. But, you know, the Postmaster General actually received reports that sacks of second-class mail were often thrown under wagon wheels uh, to get the heavily loaded vehicle through muddy sections of trail or across a boggy creek. So, you know, westbound travelers frequently reported seeing sacks of mail which have been lost or just thrown along the trail. Oh, my. uh, But in Woodson's defense, postal authorities had to concede that he wasn't getting paid much. He was, and he could not afford to do much better with his service. But his full time and energy were 
devoted just to getting as much first-class mail through as possible. And he had neither the funds nor the facilities to carry bulk mail, anything very heavy, uh, and he couldn't provide transportation for those people that wanted to ride. And that was at a fare of $200, and that was only when they could spare some room on a crowded mail wagon. Oh, my. <laughs> so it wasn't even a stagecoach. These people were paying $200 to, to try to get, uh, get head west. So now at the western end of the line, uh, Shore Penning wasn't doing much better. Uh, there's good evidence to suggest that he tried harder uh, with the contract paying him $5,000 a year less than Woodson's. Uh, and he had a harder route. He had to go over across the deserts and over Donner Pass through oh, the Sierras. Wow. So he could offer a little more than uncertain pack train mail delivery. delivery. But uh, he knew stage coaching, and he made every effort to provide some kind of service uh, possible. But his new road, uh, like I say, ran around the south end of Salt Lake and across the desert. And then you gotta have, you're going to have trouble with Indians. Uh, along that way, yep. but during August of 1854, a band of 50 Indians attacked two of Shore Painting's carriers, and one of them uh, had a wound, uh, arrow wound in his hip, and one of the pack mules was hit, and the Indians attempted to block the carrier's uh, only chance of escape, but there was a place where the trail led through a narrow canyon, and the carriers managed to outrun the Indians. But during the attack, a sack of mail bounced loose from a pack saddle and was lost, uh, no doubt resulting in more complaints about his service. Hmm. But uh, Sharpening built several way stations where he kept fresh horses or mules and where the few travelers riding with him could uh, have a, some sort of a meal. You can imagine uh, what that could have been like. No, I don't want to imagine. <laughs> so. Anyway, uh, Woodson, I know about out of time, Zeb, so I'm just going to try to wrap this up. Okay. But, uh, Woodson's contract, uh, he lost his bid to keep his franchise. There's some others that took over. There was a guy named McGraw, and then uh, he had trouble with his, and then another guy named Kimball. Uh, but there's another guy named Hickman. I just want to finish with this last little story. Uh, during one desperate ride, this Bill Hickman fought his way through six-foot snowdrifts taking 26 days to go 90 miles. Oh, my goodness. One, one rider had been found frozen to death in East Canyon, uh, uh, there by Salt Lake, uh, at Devil's Gate, where Hickman expected to find a warm station and a relief rider. He found several nearly starved men living on scraps of leather cut from worn-out moccasins. Oh, my. After a brief rest, Hickman continued on, exhausted and near starvation. He finally arrived at Independence two months and three days after leaving Salt Lake City. Wow, and those so, were real foot moccasins. <laughs> those were somebody's <laughs> moccasins, but I wouldn't want to eat them. i got to run, but i got one quick question. What okay. was the average distance between uh, stage stations? Was it about 10 or 12 miles, something like that? Well, the original, you know, after the real stage quick. lines got going, they could get up to, uh, you know, 20 miles, I uh, see. 15 20 miles. Okay. Between, I've got to run. Who knows? I've got to run, and Dr. History did it again, even though it was a long distance. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.